This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, I'll be telling the story of Cupid and Psyche, a famous love story from Greek mythology. You'll see why you shouldn't do trust falls with someone who hates you, and how, if you haven't seen someone's face, it's apparently super reasonable to assume they're a horrific snake monster. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's another forest creature, and you'll see how, if you're unwilling to take a chance on love, you might be the real monster. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 23, Burned. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore that have shaped our world. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This is a very famous story from Greek mythology. It's safe to assume that it's set in a world of the ancient Greeks or Romans. Though the earliest version we have of this story is from Lucius Apulius in the 2nd century AD. It was written for Romans when the Roman Empire was at the height of its power. Christianity wasn't anywhere close to an official religion yet, so the Greco-Roman pantheon was still worshipped by the majority of the people in the empire. The Greco-Roman pantheon, which rules from Olympus, is immortal. But in my opinion, they're basically like humanity at its worst. They are our uncontrollable id, completely focused on pleasure-seeking and gratifying whatever desires may arise, with seemingly no limitations. Humanity is at the mercy of the gods, and, most times in Greek mythology, that is a very bad thing. As a quick note, since this was written by a Roman, I didn't mention everything in its Roman name. So, Aphrodite will be Venus, Eros will be Cupid, Zeus will be Jupiter, Hera will be Juno, and Demeter will be Ceres. Venus, or Aphrodite in the Greek, looks down and sees her altars empty. Again, where is everyone? She goes off in search of it and finds crowds of people flocking from a faraway land to see a girl. Venus appears nearby, hidden, and looks at this girl. She is beautiful. In fact, one story says that she's so beautiful that language is unable to give her due praise. So, as a podcaster, that either makes my job super easy or impossibly difficult. I'm going to choose the former and move on. She's super beautiful. Venus sees them flocking to the girl, named Psyche. She hears someone say, Who needs a stone temple and a statue when we have someone even better than the goddess Venus right here? People sing Psyche's praises as she passes and throw flowers in front of her. She's modest and blushes and goes about her life. Quickly aside, looking at this logically, Psyche, the girl, is mortal. She has a few decades, maybe, and then she'll either die or be so old that it will be much harder for her to compete with the immortal and eternally beautiful goddess Venus. Venus should just chuckle at herself and walk away, right? It's not like members of the Greco-Roman pantheon are extremely jealous and petty, dooming mortals to horrible fates over infinitesimal slights that, more often than not, are either imagined or not the person's fault at all. No, it's not like they would do something like that. Venus, angry that this girl was taking some small part of devotion to her, calls to her son, the god Cupid. Psyche's beauty is unlawful, and Venus knows just what she should do. Oh yeah, and Cupid is a young man in the story. He's not a baby. That would make what follows super weird. I'll jump out and talk about Cupid a bit. He's Eros in Greek, and he represents unrestrained passion. He originally starts out as just a concept, but slowly took the form of a reckless youth who went around shooting arrows at everyone regardless of station or rank in society, setting their hearts on fire with passion. Later writers like his antics, but he was seen in the beginning as more of a destructive force. 
As we see time and time again in myth, passion can seize a person or deity and tear people and kingdoms apart. He's technically a god, though he never rules among the Twelve Olympians. He also flies around on golden wings. She tells her son, who with his arrows can make people fall in love with other people and things, to go to the psyche and make her fall in love with some low, mean, and monstrous person. He flies to her with bitter and sweet waters, and he drops the bitter waters on her while she's sleeping to bring her sorrow. He took out an arrow and nicks her side, trying to think of someone horrible he could bring here, but she startles him when she wakes up. He's so startled that he fumbles the arrow, and the point grazes his thigh as he's looking at her. He's invisible, so she just looks through him, but looking at her, wow, Cupid thinks to himself, she is beautiful. Cupid thinks that she's way more beautiful than his mom, which he should, but this is Greek mythology, so you never know. He sees why his mom is jealous. Unaware that he grazed himself with the arrow, he immediately feels terrible about making her feel bad and douses her in the joyful water, making her feel good. He flies off completely and utterly in love with her. There's no real follow-up on the job, and Venus doesn't seem to care that Psyche isn't in love with the monster, but she still withholds any blessing from the girl, and both of Psyche's sisters marry princes. Her loneliness is combated with Cupid, still infatuated with her and watching from afar, doesn't work super hard, or at all, trying to find someone for her to love. She spends each day sitting alone at home, and while people still praised her and are coming from far away to see her, even that is starting to wane. procession is marching up the mountain. Well, not exactly a funeral procession, more of a wedding, actually. You see, when Psyche didn't have any suitors, her parents went to an oracle of Apollo. He said that the virgin is destined to be the bride of no mortal lover. Her future husband awaits at the top of the mountain. He is a winged monster whom neither gods nor men can resist. Tears are streaming down Psyche's face. She didn't ask for any of this, she never wanted people coming from far off to basically worship her. Now she earned the ire of the gods. The father and mother hugged their daughter and left her alone on the top of a mountain to marry a monster. They knew that they would never see her again and leave her there on the mountain for the monster to come and take her. Isn't mythological parenting great? She looks all around her at the cold, rocky peaks and mourns the passing of her old life and dreads the one to come. I would imagine she briefly considers jumping but she resigns herself to her fate. Soon, she becomes tired after a day of climbing and falls asleep there on the mountain, waiting for the monster to come. She has the most amazing dream that Zephyr, the god in control of the western wind, has come to raise her up to a beautiful garden. She could almost feel the soft grass and smell the fragrant flowers of her dreams, putting the rocky peak out of her mind as best she could. The next morning, when she awakens, she sees that it wasn't a dream. She is actually in a beautiful garden. She stands up and, in the distance, sees a magnificent palace. She immediately knew she wasn't in the world of mortals. This was the retreat of some god. She walks up, knocks, and the door opens, but there's no one behind it. The palace is pristine and magnificent inside. Golden pillars support the ceiling, and beautiful art is everywhere. All you see is yours. She hears from a voice, 
somewhere. She looks around, and it seems to be coming from everywhere in the house. It informs her that the voice came from servants, and she could hear them, but not see them. Her room is down the hall, and whenever she wants dinner, all she has to do is come out and take a seat at the table. After a dinner that magically appeared, accompanied by unseen singers and lute players, she goes back to bed, but she's nervous. She becomes even more nervous when all the lights in the entire palace are snuffed out at once. Sitting up in bed, her eyes strain for light. Any light. She didn't see a thing, though. She jumps when she feels a touch on her shoulder. It's soft. Then she feels someone hold her face and kiss her. It didn't feel like a horrifying monster. She strokes the face in darkness. It feels nice. One thing led to another, and she and her mysterious, supposedly monstrous husband consummate their marriage. What marriage, you ask? That's a very good question. She was apparently given a marriage by her parents on the mountain, and we're supposed to see the transition from the mountaintop to the garden as simultaneous death and marriage. Sort of like a rite of passage. Regardless, she has married the monster. Or whatever it is. Wink, wink. Time passes, and she finds that she enjoys the castle, and begins to enjoy her monstrous husband's visits at night even more. Though he would always leave before first light, and she still hasn't seen his face. Throughout the day, she would enjoy the house, the gardens, music, and the food, and at night she would enjoy time with her husband, who seemed the opposite of a monster. He was kind and caring, and afterwards they would talk all night. Then, one night when she's laying there talking to the man she's never seen, he tells her of how her mother, father, and sisters think she's dead, are mourning her, and weeping day in and day out. I know you probably want to go to them. I do now, she says. Why would you tell me that? Oh, I thought you might have heard them wailing at the mountain, the husband said. You haven't? Okay, don't worry about it. Well, now I want to see them, Psyche says, to let them know that I'm alive and that you aren't a serpent. You're not a serpent, right? I mean, we're past that. Don't, don't worry about who I am, he says. But anyway, you can't go. It will set in motion a chain of events that will bring destruction and sorrow and will leave you destitute. She is quiet and sits in darkness, resigning herself to the fact that she can't go. She has a good thing going here. She just needs to put her grief-wracked family out of her mind. Well, she couldn't. Days passed, and she felt as if she could hear them, far off on the mountain, calling for her. The palace and gardens started to seem all the more suffocating. She feels that she's completely alone, other than the man that came to her every night, who she hadn't even seen. More time passes, and she begins to spend all of her days weeping. She had to see them, if only for a moment, to let them know that she's okay. Weeping, she talks to her husband one night and tells him that she would die of grief if she didn't see them. He sat in silence and finally says okay. They who come up, but please don't listen to your sisters when they try to plant doubts in your mind about me, lest by your curiosity you lose everything. She says that she would sooner die than be without him, really throwing that rather serious phrase around a lot. Her husband thought about it and told her they would be here tomorrow. When they arrive, the sisters are shocked. Not only was she not dead by a snake husband, but she is way, way better off than they are, and they are married to princes. 
They forced smiles as they heard the music and tasted the best food that they had ever had. Psyche told them that her husband was not a monster, but a beautiful, flaxen-bearded man who, you know what, is out hunting today. <laughs> Bad luck. You'll meet him sometime, I'm sure. The western wind drops the sisters back off at the mountain at the end of the day. They should have been happy that she wasn't dead. But they're only focused on the fact that she had everything so much better than they did. It wasn't fair. The oldest daughter's married to a prince, yeah, but he's older than her father and apparently weaker than a child, and he kept her shut up in the house all day. The middle daughter says that she wishes that was all she had to deal with. Her husband, though younger, was riddled with disease. She stained her perfect, soft hands when she was forced to rub his pus-ridden gout boils. They conspired to let their parents continue thinking Psyche had been killed while they devised a way to bring their sister to ruin. A few nights pass, and Psyche finds that she's pregnant. She wants her sisters to come back so she can share the news. The husband tells her that they could come back, but she needs to be very careful and not say anything about him. If she can do that, the baby will be a god. If not, it'll just be a mortal. You can't trust them, he says to her, but I'll let them in because this matters so much to you. She thanks him and strokes his bearded face, shrouded in darkness. Days later, the sisters come to the mountain. Not waiting for the wind to pick them up, they jumped off. But the wind thankfully catches them and carries them to the palace. Sitting at the table, they ask again about the husband. Psyche had forgotten what she told them the first time, so she quickly made up another lie. He was an older and powerful merchant with a beautiful salt and pepper beard. They cock their heads. Hmm. They think on this, and at the end of the day, return to the mountain. Okay, so she hasn't seen the husband, they say, after Zephyr drops them off of the mountain. Looking at the palace, they assumed he was a god. Ugh. If Psyche ends up being the mother of a god, I'm going to hang myself. The next day, Psyche hears something in the garden. She runs out to the sound of weeping and sees her sisters lying on the grass. Oh good, they say. She's still alive. Alive, Psyche says? What are you talking about? They say, let's be honest. You haven't seen your husband, have you? You don't even know. The prophecy? It was that you would marry a horned, evil, winged serpent, and he would wait until you gave birth and eat you and your child. Here's where we need to suspend a little disbelief, because despite her husband warning her multiple times about this exact thing, Psyche does exactly what he warned her against. She believes them. She says, well, I guess I haven't seen him. He could be a horrible snake monster. Things get a little dark after this, at least from the sister's point of view. Yes, they're jealous, but then they produce a knife and a lantern. They pass it to Psyche and tell her to hide it. She has to be sure. Tonight, after her husband falls asleep, she needs to light the lantern and cut off his head. Don't even really think about it or look at him too much. He's a horrible snake monster, trust us. Like, just get a good enough look to cut his head off, and that's it. Don't dwell on it. She agrees to this, and her sisters leave, riding on the wind, smiling evil smiles. That night, after her husband came to her and fell asleep, she feels around in the complete darkness, stubbing toes and feeling for familiar objects until her hands feel the lantern. She brings it to the bed and takes the knife from underneath the pillow. It was drastic, 
but feeling her abdomen, she had to protect herself and her child. She lights the lantern and is shocked by what she sees. It is the most handsome man she's ever seen. Maybe the most handsome man ever, she wasn't sure. One thing she is sure of, though, is that he's not a snake monster. Not even close. She notices something in the corner of the room and sneaks over to it. It's arrows. Her eyes go wide in shock. She's married, or at least in a very serious relationship, with Cupid. She's playing with one of his arrows when it accidentally scratches her. And she looks at him, falling in love in a way she apparently wasn't before. She goes back and stands over him, ogling his naked form. Unfortunately, while watching him sleep, she didn't tend to the lamp. She wants to get close, to really see his face, so she bends down. And that's when she sees it. The oil from the lamp pouring out. Psyche is watching, as if it's in slow motion, but she can't do anything. She watches the boiling hot oil splash on his chest and horribly burn him. He immediately awakens, and his eyes shoot to her, the light, and then himself. A look of pain, disappointment, and just pain from the burn washes over his face, and behind him he opens up his golden wings. Without a word, he flaps to the air, but before he can get away, she grabs his thigh. He refuses to speak with her as he flies out, but she won't let go, so he's just dragging her through the palace. Once they're in the open air, he shakes her free and flies up. She pleads with him that she's so sorry. Come back. You're Cupid. I had no idea. He hovers in the air, considering everything, and finally lands on a cypress tree, out of range of her. I told you this was going to happen if you listen to them. This exact thing. You didn't trust me, though. You know, when did I ever make you think I was some monster? That I would ever hurt you? Your snakes of sisters will be punished. But you? Your punishment is this. And he flies off, abandoning her and the unborn baby without another word. She watches him until he's out of sight and then lays down and sobs. He had left her here, the father of her child. She hadn't trusted him, she thinks to herself. She's so forlorn that she brings herself to the nearest river and throws herself in, trying to kill herself. The river, though, is a friend of Cupid's and knows of his new girlfriend slash common-law wife. He won't let her kill herself along with Cupid's new baby. She washes up on a shore. Psyche ambles on until she sees a city in the distance and walks to it. She's starving and thirsty and weary and realizes that this city is one that one of her sister's husbands rule over. She drags herself to the palace and sits down with her sister. We were really, really wrong about him, Psyche says to her sister. And the sister inspects Psyche. Clothes are dirty and tattered. Her hair is a mess and she's constantly sobbing. He wasn't a snake monster, Psyche says. He was the god Cupid. And he left me because I didn't trust him. Her sister comes and pats her back and kisses her head. Oh, Psyche, I'm incredibly sorry. I'm going to go get something for you. I'll be right back. The sister goes to her husband, the prince, and says that her parents have died. And she needs to leave immediately to go to her home kingdom. And she leaves. Yes, she leaves Psyche still sitting in the room in sorrow and her husband thinking that she was going to settle all her family's affairs. 
She doesn't go do that though, her parents are still very much alive, and instead she goes to the mountaintop, where Zephyr would take them up to see Psyche near Cupid's palace. She yells out to Cupid to take a more worthy wife than her foolish sister. She orders Zephyr to take the god's new master to Cupid, and jumps. Zephyr does not take his new master to Cupid, and instead of being lifted gently to Cupid's palace, she drops to the rocky valley below. Unfortunately for her, the fall doesn't kill her. Her legs are broken, and she has blood streaming down into her eyes, and it hurts to breathe, and she tries to push herself up on her shattered arms. She can only lay there. She can see the forest, though, and the pack of wolves that is emerging. The same thing happens to the other sister, who Psyche visits after the older's mysterious disappearance. She too leaves Psyche sitting there, and she too is torn apart by wild animals after the fall fails to kill her. Meanwhile, the burn from the oil is actually really terrible, and Cupid is in his mother's house recovering. Unable to do his job, marriages everywhere are filled with strife and bitterness, and Venus talks to her friends about what happened to Cupid. They tell her, well, Cupid is in love. Hey, remember that girl a few years back who was stealing all your worshippers? It might be her. Venus, enraged, goes back to Cupid and demands to know the truth. And he confirms it. She calls some friends, Juno and Ceres, who are Hera and Demeter in Greek, to try to get them on her side. But they basically say, yeah, Cupid's an adult, and so maybe it's not healthy to be telling him who he can and can't be with. Venus doesn't like this answer, and flies off in a rage, in search of Psyche. Psyche is still traveling this place and that, looking for Cupid in the wide world, seeking to apologize. She finds a temple of Ceres, and after cleaning it up a bit in hopes of appeasing any of the gods, one actually walks in. It is Ceres, Venus's friend, who agrees with Cupid. She takes one look at the girl and says, You, you're Psyche. Okay, wow, I'm glad I found you. Watch out, Venus is very, very angry with you. She falls to Ceres' feet and begins weeping and wiping them with her hair. Ceres tells her that, you know what, I'd love to help, but Venus is my friend, so I'm going to do the opposite of help, and immediately kick you out of my temple. Basically the same thing happens with Juno after Psyche wanders into her temple in a forest. This time though, it's apparently against the law for Juno to help. The law is entitled, Se Servo Corrupto, for anybody who's wondering. In some versions, Ceres has told her to just turn herself over to Venus. No one can help her against the Olympian, so she might as well take whatever punishment the woman has in store. She nods, and goes to find Venus's palace. Eventually she does, though I have no idea how one finds a palace of a goddess on the earth, but walking up, one of Venus's servants recognizes her approaching. He grabs her by the hair and pulls her in. Inside, she's standing before Venus, where once she was matched in beauty, she's been wandering in the wilderness for weeks, and is tired and haggard. She apologizes for whatever it was she actually did to Venus, and says she wants to stop all this. Venus smiles a cold smile. Oh, because you're carrying my grandchild? You claim that you married my son, out in a field, away from witnesses. Look at you, you little liar. He wouldn't marry you. You're disgusting. Psyche stands up to the woman, but she stares right through the girl. When Psyche's done speaking, Venus rolls her eyes and flicks her wrist at the servant, who grabs Psyche by the hair again and takes her off to be whipped. Ugh, 
Dragging the pregnant woman back by her hair, Venus throws her in a grain storehouse, and like Vasilisa, she's surrounded by piles of grain. And also like Vasilisa, she must sort it. Before tonight, when Venus gets back from banquet, she shuts and locks the door. Well, I can't do this, Psyche rightfully says, looking at the massive piles. It's an impossible task, and she's just going to beat me anyway. Might as well not spend all day fretting about this. And she lays down and gets some sleep. She wakes up hours later to see the floor moving. And black, everywhere but immediately around her. She jumps to her feet. Ants. Ants are everywhere and sorting the piles. Yes, in a very fairy tale move, the ants took pity on Psyche and sorted the grains for her. Venus bursts in that night after coming home from the banquet, and she's quite tipsy. She narrows her eyes when she sees the neat piles of grain before chucking in a small, hard piece of bread and going to bed. The next day, Psyche is tired, sore from her several beatings and hunger because, remember, not only is she starving, but she's pregnant. She decides, again, that she's going to try to kill herself. It would be better for everyone. And she's not going to be able to do the tasks that have been laid out for her today. She needs to take the golden wool off large, angry rams with sharp horns and stony foreheads. She was so tired that she just wanted it all to end. She would never see Cupid again, and her child would never be a god. In fact, he would be the hungry child of a homeless woman. She wades out into the river. A reed sees the tear-streaked pregnant woman going fully clothed into the river and says, basically, you're not going to kill yourself, right? Psyche explains the whole situation, and the reed says, oh, yeah, I know those rams. The way you have it laid out would be impossible, but I have another way. Here, hide in the plants there, and I'll tell you when to come out. If this doesn't work, you can still kill yourself, but just give it a shot. Psyche shrugs and pulls the cattails aside to hide. After a few minutes, she hears splashing, and after many more minutes, she hears stomping, more splashing, and then nothing. Psst, you can come out now, the reed whispers. She parted the leaves and sees, in the brambles on the other side of the bank, soggy golden wool hanging in the branches. The reed told her that they would come here every so often and bathe, and their wool gets caught over there. Well, what are you waiting for? Go get it. Venus held the wool, now dry, when she got back, and sneered. As a quick aside, I'm just going to fast forward to the next one. She needs to get water from the spring that supplies the river Styx. It's guarded by dragons. Jupiter, or Zeus's eagle, spots her and helps her out because he likes Cupid. How everyone but Cupid's mother knew of this relationship is beyond me. Okay, there's one more thing, Venus says. Though she hasn't really detailed the reward for completing the task. I'm guessing it's forgiveness for the completely intentional crime of being more beautiful than Venus... Who knows? Venus says that taking care of her burned son has completely exhausted her beauty, so she asks Psyche to head down to the underworld to get some beauty from Persephone, the not-at-all-consensual bride of Hades. She's Ceres' daughter, and she was kidnapped by Hades, or Pluto to the Romans, and she spends half of her time in the underworld with him. Despite two tasks really fortuitously working out despite no effort from her, Psyche decides, again, to kill herself. She walks to the top of a high tower, but again an inanimate object begins talking to her. It's the tower. He gives her very clear directions. She decides once again to not kill herself and give it a shot. 
following the very specific and weird directions of the tower, Psyche is walking with a coin in her mouth and getting tired of the metallic taste. She walks up to Karen, the ferryman of the river Styx. She presents the spit-soaked coin in her tongue to the wrinkled old man, and he snatches it off. She walks aboard the ferry. She hears barking and looks inside her bag, feeling the bread. She steps off the ferry, and she could see, in the caves ahead, the three-headed hellhound Cerberus. This was the beast that the legendary Hercules had fought and captured. Psyche thinks that, wow, it would be great to hear the stories of Hercules' labors, in podcast format, in episodes numbered, I don't know, 10A and 10B. You know, if anyone ever invents such a thing as a podcast someday. Cerberus is barking and snapping on its chain, and she reaches in her bag. It can't really be as easy as tossing the dog some food, right? Walking past, and Cerberus munching on the bread, she's amazed that it was that easy. Kneeling before Persephone, queen of the underworld, she sits through the pleasantries like she was instructed to. Don't take anything, she reminds herself. Just ask for some bread. The food, though, to the pregnant woman who has gone days without a real meal, is incredibly tempting. She's able to resist, though, and asks for bread. Persephone's face morphs from a wide, fake smile to a knowing smirk. She tells Psyche that she has chosen wisely and tosses her some bread. If you eat food in the underworld, you'll end up getting trapped there. That's actually what happened to Persephone, but we'll go over that myth someday. She makes the request, and Persephone gives her some beauty in a small wooden box. She makes her way back out of the caverns, throwing another chunk of bread to Cerberus, and spitting out another coin for the ferryman to take her back across the river Styx. Walking back, after days of travel, she's getting close to Venus's palace. She thinks about Cupid. Maybe she would finally get to see him. She looks down at her tattered dress and tangled hair. After betraying him, would he really want to see her? And if he did see her, would he take her back looking like this? If there was enough beauty in the box for Venus, then surely she wouldn't notice if a little bit was missing for Psyche to use. Psyche cracks open the box, just enough to take a little of the beauty. But then something shot out of it and swarmed around her head. Darkness takes her, and there, in the road, Psyche drops to the ground, as if dead. It wasn't beauty in the box, but sleep, and it's far too much for Psyche, a mere mortal, to handle. In his mother's palace, where he's recovering, Cupid is chafing at needing to stay inside. The burn had healed, he protested, but his mother insisted that he stay. Still, he couldn't stop thinking of Psyche. The girl he had kind of kidnapped, totally married without her approval, wouldn't let see his face, and then abandoned when she started making unreasonable demands, like, tell me who you are. He had just been angry with her when he abandoned her. Cupid thinks to himself. He misses her, and wants her back. He spreads his wings, goes to the window, and jumps out. He has to find her. And it takes a surprisingly short amount of time to find her. He finds the bedraggled Psyche, sprawled out on the road, barely out of sight of his mother's palace. He scoops her up and, thinking she might be dead, weeps for her, but tries pricking her with his arrow, and she wakes up. Upon waking, she sees Cupid and apologizes, and he learns of everything that she's been doing for even the possibility of seeing him again. He forgives her, 
and takes her back to this very one-sided relationship. They take the box back and hand it to one of Venus's servants. The vain and petty Venus will never consent to this marriage. They must go to someone higher. They fly off to Olympus. And there, on Olympus, Cupid talks to his father and grandfather, Jupiter, or Zeus. And yeah, mythology can be gross sometimes. He explains everything to Zeus, and the king is happy that Cupid is putting his adulterous life behind him, though he's really wanting to talk. He calls an assembly of the gods, and Venus is outraged when she sees the mortal Psyche standing there. But the marriage has Zeus's approval, so there's nothing she can do about it. Zeus announces the marriage, and has his servant bring the nectar of ambrosia to give Psyche and the baby immortality. She drinks of the nectar, and can feel the baby kicking in her, who got some of it as well. They are now both immortal, and she and her husband can finally live in safety and peace in the daylight. So yeah, the story. It's sweet, kind of. I mean, he totally kidnapped her, right? They fall in love, sure, but only after he took her away to his remote house. And I can kind of understand the feelings of betrayal at wanting to see his face, but he's also not really doing anything other than coming to see her at night and then leaving all day long. In my mind, it's totally reasonable for her to want to know who the father of her child is, but that's my 20th century commentary. It's a nice story of redemption that Psyche really shouldn't have needed to earn, and yeah, it's a complete injustice that Venus made her do tasks for being prettier than her, but that's not even worth addressing because the gods being jealous at mortals and punishing them for nothing happens way, way too often in Greek mythology. Next week on the podcast, it's another mythology episode, this time from Norse mythology, where you'll see the wedding of Thor, but it's not at all like you think it's going to be. You'll also see the ridiculous and kind of disgusting origin of bad poetry. I want to say thanks to The Story by O, Meg603755, 34Pod, Critical Thinker 11 Vicky Bumble, C.E. Gordon, Omiwise, C. Minor, Drowning Midget, Allie Something, and Natalie Damon for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to leave a review, it's a huge help for the podcast, and iTunes is the best place for now. You can find it there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. And there's also a membership thing on the site. It's a huge help for me, and a great way to support the show. And if you'd like to get extra episodes and ebooks, you can for less than $5 a month. That's less than a third of a bag of dirt, taken from the supposed UFO crash site in Roswell, New Mexico. By the way, I'm not even joking. It's on Amazon. I actually linked it in the show notes this time. So, I guess if you think the podcast is worth more than a bag of dirt, check out support.mythpodcast.com. And, wow, that came out as an especially hard sell this time. Sorry about the guilt trip. The creature this week is a forest creature named the Dern Weibel. She's from German folklore, and sometimes she's known as the Woodwife. She's alternatively a seductive woman trying to lure you into the forest with her wiles, or a woolly and wild woman with moss grain on her, trying to lure you into the forest with her wiles. She'll come up to solitary travelers and ask them to follow her, you might be wondering what horrific punishment is in store for you if you refuse. Her tearing you limb for limb is a safe bet, as is drowning, beheading, and deadly tickle fights have made at least one appearance on the podcast. Well, she won't do any of that. She'll just run away crying. Yeah, your punishment is really hurting her feelings, and feeling super awkward and bad about it. She's incredibly lonely and just wants to be loved, and you just made her life that much worse. 
and that's kind of the fullest extent of the bad things she can do. She's dressed in a red cloak, carrying a basket of apples, which can turn into money after she gives them away. Other versions of the Woodwise will ask for help with something and will give wood chips for payment. Some people, angry about this wood chip economic system, have immediately thrown them away, not realizing that upon exiting the forest, they turn to gold. So the lesson for today is, if you meet a forest creature on the road and she asks you to go with her, it's okay as long as it's this very specific and non-threatening forest creature. If it's any of the other very malicious mythological forest creatures I've talked about, definitely do not go. Unfortunately, you won't know until the creature is either attacking you and tearing you apart, or giving you apples that will turn to gold. That's the show this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.